Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Efty, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a trip that is being made in the next few days by the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. Uh, the mission, we're told, is to um, visit with allies at the Munich Security Conference, uh, also known as Verkunda, where she will try to assure them that um, notwithstanding comments made by Donald Trump or actions of the Republicans in Congress vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, that the United States can be relied upon as a steady-handed ally, uh, especially when the going gets tough. I'm afraid this is mission impossible under the circumstances, uh, and not because of these other considerations, but because of the conduct of the Biden-Harris administration itself. Look no further than Afghanistan, the surrender of a nation that we had bled and, and spent uh, enormous amount of treasure to uh, secure for two decades was a very, very cautionary tale for most of America's friends and allies and greatly emboldened our enemies. Then there's the matter of the present challenge in Israel and the conduct of the administration there, which I can only describe as a consistent and intensifying effort to undermine Israel, to uh, shore up Hamas, its enemy, to say nothing of Iran and its other proxies, but to actually, I fear, uh, endanger the government as well as the people of the Jewish state. We're going to be talking about all of that with a very distinguished former ambassador of Israel. His name is Yoram Edinger, and we've asked him to come on the program today to talk, yes, about Israel and the war that it is currently waging, I believe our war, as well as its own, for Western civilization against, again, our mutual enemies, but also about the context. Um, the ambassador has served in America for quite a number of years. He's now retired. Uh, he knows his way around the diplomatic beat, however, and his insights particularly into the strategic interests of the West, uh, this country as well as his own and others, uh, is incalculably important, and we're delighted to be able to present him to you. Ambassador Yoram Edinger, welcome back to Securing America. It's great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. It's always a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I know you're stateside at the moment, so thank you especially for taking the time to join us in what I know is a busy trip. Um, let's start, if we could, sir, with a, a bit of a stock-taking on how America is perceived at the moment internationally, uh, and uh, not simply because of these uh, considerations of what Donald Trump may have said the other day, what uh, the Republicans are feeling about uh, Ukraine, but uh, the policies of the United States government under the Biden-Harris administration. Your take, sir. Uh, I would like to refer not to the whole world, but to the Middle East. And in the Middle East, when it comes to every single pro-American Arab uh, regime, there is a great deal of uh, disappointment. And it's not only because of the flight from Afghanistan. It's not only the embrace of the Muslim Brotherhood who uh, threatened every single pro-American Arab regime. It's not only because of the courting and appeasing of the Ayatollah's uh, regime, but it's primarily because of the attitude towards its uh, allies. Uh, the U.S. has been pressuring pro-American Saudi regime, pressuring the pro-American UAE regime, pressuring the pro-American Sisi regime in Egypt, and recently following the initial wave of support for Israel in its battle 
against Hamas and Hezbollah terrorism, following that highly appreciated support, comes a wave of pressure on Israel to shift from fourth and fifth gear in its war against Hamas to second gear, first gear, and maybe even uh, go through a ceasefire. Uh, uh, this is a pretty bad message for every ally in the U of, of the U.S. in the Middle East, because they consider, and rightly so, Israel to be the uh, crown jewel, so to speak, of U.S. policy in the Middle East. And if the U.S. leans on Israel, what can other allies of the U.S. expect? But more than that, Israel is fighting Hamas not as only its own war. Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood whose goal transcends Israel, whose goal has been, in fact, since 1928 to bring the so-called Western infidel to submission. Hamas and Hezbollah are the proxies of the Ayatollahs of Iran. Their goal transcends Israel. Their goal has to do with bringing the so-called great American Satan to submission. And Israel Death fighting- to America, in fact. Absolutely. And Israel fighting both Hamas and Hezbollah is literally fighting the war of Western democracies against the onslaught by Islamic terrorism, pro-Iranian, pro-ISIS, pro-Muslim Brotherhood, and any attempt to slow down the Israeli onslaught is actually threatening, once again, every single pro-American Arab regime and certainly American interest in the region and providing tailwind to the Ayatollahs of Iran, to Russia, and to China. Let me drill down on this for just a moment, because I think what you've said is, is to my way of thinking, indisputably true. And yet, uh, we are hearing, notably from the Biden administration, to be fair, uh, that the Saudis, for example, are insisting that as a precondition to having uh, some kind of rapprochement with Israel, formal, perhaps a peace treaty, that Israel must cease fire in Gaza, must uh, accommodate the demand for a Palestinian state. Uh, do you believe that to be the case, sir? And, and indeed, this has been the Saudi talk, and I underline talk for decades. It's nothing new. But the sensible uh, element by any policymaker would be to examine the walk rather than the talk. And when we examine the Saudi walk, we find out that it was the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who in great deal of uh, intent engineered the Israel peace treaties with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco, without, without preconditioning it upon any gesture to the Palestinians. On, uh, on November 11th, at the height of the current war between Israel and Hamas, there was a joint session, a joint summit of the Arab League and the International Islamic uh, Organization, hosted by Saudi Arabia, and the Palestinians, along with Algeria and Iran, proposed a resolution to end all diplomatic, financial, touristic, and uh, security ties with Israel. The Saudis were the one to defeat that resolution. That's the Saudi walk. That's the and Saudi the U.S. Walk. would... Mr. Besser, we have to ask you to hold your thought here for just a moment. We have to take a break. We'll be right back with more with Ambassador Yoram Edinger, a distinguished diplomat of the State of Israel, a good friend of this program, and one of our seers on matters involving U.S. interests and that of the world in the Middle East. Stay tuned for more right after this.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Vice President Kamala Harris is en route to a conference in Europe where she'll contend that, unlike Donald Trump and congressional Republicans, Team Biden can be trusted to stand with our allies. The Biden administration's actual record, however, makes this mission impossible. Consider two examples. Joe Biden abjectly surrendered Afghanistan, and now he's actively sabotaging Israel. Think of it as Afghanistan 2.0. Of course, some in Europe welcome the Biden-Harris administration's efforts to prevent Israel from destroying Hamas, giving it so-called humanitarian assistance while constricting weapons resupply of the Jewish state. Some even favor U.S. support for the overthrow of the Israeli government. Other allies, though, are sensibly considering a plan B. That will likely take the form of a separate peace with the Chinese, Russians, and Iranians. The predictable effect will be a far more dangerous world for freedom-loving peoples. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back, and Joram Ettinger is in the house, I'm very pleased to say. Um, he is a distinguished diplomat, uh, now retired in the state of Israel. Uh, he had represented uh, the Jewish state in the United States uh, for a number of years, uh, not least in uh, the uh, the state of Texas as the consul there for the uh, Israeli mission in Houston. Uh, But also, he spent a lot of time in uh, the Congress of the United States. That was his portfolio in the embassy in Washington. And he has a perspective, I think, that's incredibly important, both on, well, what's happening in Israel, but also what's happening in Washington and how that bears on the the Jewish state's vital interests and ours. Mr. Ambassador, you laid the groundwork very nicely for uh, us by talking about uh, Kamala Harris's uh, travels and how uh, reliable the United States is actually being perceived to be at this moment, uh, both in the Middle East and, and I would argue beyond. I wanted to talk with you about the further evidence that is accruing by the day that the United States is not reliable, that what is being done by the Biden-Harris administration to I would argue it's most important ally, certainly it's most important ally in the Middle East, uh, your state, the Jewish state of Israel, uh, is uh, highly corrosive to this idea that uh, we can be counted on. Even when the president personally went to Israel to say that was the case. What is happening now, sir, in so many respects seems to be very much the opposite, uh, undermining Israel, um, restricting its military um, activity at a moment when a decisive victory is essential, and even threatening its government, for heaven's sakes. Um, Talk a little bit about how uh, this all looks to you and uh, to your countrymen at the moment. Well, uh, once again, uh, one uh, should not ignore the initial wave of support, which was essential for Israel to uh, restore its posture of deterrence from the great deal of debacle uh, of October 7. We have resurged uh, to new military heights, and there's no doubt great deal is due to the American support. But recently, there has been pressure not only to slow down on uh, the attempt to defeat and obliterate uh, Hamas, but also to facilitate the establishment of a Palestinian state, which would be a self-defeating proposal from the American point of view, because the U.S., aims right now to establish a Palestinian state, while the pro-American Arabs are very much aware of the track record of that proposed Palestinian state when it comes to the Arab sphere, not Israeli sphere. And when it comes to the Arab sphere, the pro-American Arabs, primarily Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are aware of the track record of the Palestinian leadership, which has earned them the title of a role model of intra-Arab subversion, intra-Arab terrorism, and intra-Arab treachery. And certainly they know, 
should there be a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River, that this would be the end of the pro-American Hashemite regime east of the Jordan River, which would transform Jordan into a chaotic state platform for all sorts of Islamic terrorist organization, pro-Iranian, pro-ISIS, pro-Muslim Brotherhood, Palestinians, pro-Iraqi, pro-Syrian, which would also yield a, a ripple effect into the Arabian Peninsula, threatening the survival of every single pro-American oil-producing Arab regime, which again would be a bonanza to the rivals and enemies of the U.S. and quite a blow to American economy, homeland security, and another example of what Middle Eastern actors have learned, terrorist always bite the hand that feeds them. The U.S. should have learned that because the U.S. helped the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to get rid of the Soviets from Afghanistan, only to find out the traces of the Mujahideen in September 11. The U.S. before that provided the tailwind to the Ayatollahs of Iran to take over control only to find out that the Ayatollahs have become the number one, the number one terrorist octopus, anti-American octopus anywhere in the world. And once again, U.S. falls into the same trap, assisting the Palestinians under the delusion that this time they're not going to bite the hand that feeds it. Right. And, and you know, you've, I think you made the point very elegantly that this idea of a Palestinian state is not only uh, a threat to Israel, but actually to our friends in the region more broadly, and I would argue to us as well. But, you know, it, it's interesting, and I'd, I'd like you to comment on this, if you would, um, Ambassador Redegren. The two-state solution was so-called, was really what was in practice until Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. It had effectively a state in Gaza. And you saw exactly what you've just described uh, happening there, the, the incubation of uh, jihadism that, of course, represented a threat to Israel, yes, but was uh, a horror to the rest of, uh, I think, uh, the region and, and certainly to our interests as well. And the key question, in a way, is, uh, is there any reason to believe that were the outcome of this, uh, you know, war now underway to be that kind of state recreated, maybe under the management so-called of uh, the Palestinian Authority, at least nominally, uh, the, the outcome would be different, sir. Well, uh, any assessment of the future must rely on past track record. And the past track record of the Palestinian leadership, whether it's the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, is well known in the Middle East. But more so, the proposal or the pressure on Israel to agree to a ceasefire, the pressure on Israel to agree to concessions with the Palestinians and establish a Palestinian state does highlight the very devastating misunderstanding by the State Department of Middle East reality because Western concept of ceasefire is not the Middle Eastern concept of ceasefire. We signed numerous ceasefires with Hamas and Hezbollah. Each ceasefire for us was supposedly a road to peace, to resolution of conflict. For them, for them, it was a respite in order to bolster their capabilities and attack us much more forcibly next time. The same thing is the pressure to negotiate with terrorists. Negotiation in the West means you give and take and arrive at a common ground. In the Middle East, negotiation means a way to, a path to bring the so-called infidel to submission. 
And we should. Well, and all of this is the its roots in the traditions of Muhammad, does it not? Absolutely. Well, this has been going on for 14 centuries. It's nothing new. And the history of Western policy in the Middle East is replete with repetitive uh, mistakes which have dealt big-time disasters to Western interests in the Middle East, haunting every single pro-American, pro-Western regime in the region. Mr. Ambassador, we have to leave it at that. I think this point is, is so well taken. And if it's bad for us, it could be fatal to the state of Israel. We must not go there. Thank you, sir, for your time, for your continuing service to Israel and to the cause of freedom. Come back to us with updates, if you would. Thank you. We'll be right back with more right after this. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back. And it is a personal privilege as well as a high honor to be able to say my dear friend and very highly esteemed colleague, Elaine Donnelly, is in the house. Elaine is the founder and president of a wonderful organization, a truly indispensable one called the Center for Military Readiness. Its job is basically to speak for the men and women in uniform about matters important to them, but generally speaking, of which they are not permitted to comment. And she does a marvelous job of apprising us of the true state of what is happening to those in uniform and to recommend uh, assiduously corrective actions to make sure that they are supported <clears throat> properly and capable of doing the mission that we expect of them, namely to fight our nation's wars. Elaine, it's great to have you with us. Welcome back. Good to see you, Frank. You've done at um, cmrlink.org, if I'm not mistaken, if I yes. get that right, uh, yes. a very important analysis on the National Defense Authorization Act. It's the kind of thing that I think is such an important contribution that you make uh, really uniquely, specifically looking at what this annual authorization bill did in the end, after much toing and froing, um, that fell short of the kind of correctives to the Biden team's policies uh, with respect to the so-called woke uh, culture. And I, I think of it really as Marxism, but give us just a quick overview of, of what happened at the hands of uh, specifically, I think the majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, and the minority leader in the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries. Yes. Well, I give high marks to the Republicans for their efforts. Uh, we had the strongest, especially on the House side, the strongest defense bill going into the conference committee that we've ever seen. And they had all sorts of measures to dial back 
on all of the woke initiatives of this administration and before Biden, of course, Barack Obama. Um, unfortunately, though, in conference committee, as you mentioned, the Democrat leadership, and not necessarily just the leadership on the on the Armed Services Committee, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and Schumer and all the rest of them, they said, well, we're not going to put up with a, a measure to uphold meritocracy. They didn't want that. They didn't want to eliminate racial discrimination at the service academies. They didn't want the measure to cut back on critical race theory instructions, which are divisive and demoralizing. And they certainly didn't want the measure saying that um, funds should not be used for travel, for abortions, uh, or for surgeries involving the attempt to transition someone to change their sex, something that can't be done. They, they targeted all these good measures. And in most cases, they did succeed in removing them from the bill. Now, there were a few that did make it through the gauntlet, but in some cases they were watered down. So here it is, uh, February. We have a to-do list for Congress. And the to-do list picks up on where they left off last year, but there's also some new ideas to make the bill even better. And let's start with meritocracy. Uh, the the, this is our number one priority, has been for several years, but especially in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision, which said in higher education in the civilian world, Harvard University of North Carolina, you may not discriminate on the basis of race. Very straightforward. Now, the military service academies were not a party to that case, and the Supreme Court said, we'll take that up perhaps another day. So lawsuit, a lawsuit has already been filed to extend to the service academies, but that will take years. In the meantime, Congress should say very simply, we will not tolerate, we prohibit discrimination based on race and other superficial factors and upholding meritocracy, recognition of achievement. Would you and just comment that's the number little, one priority this year. Yeah, and, and explain a little bit further about the history of the Defense Department, going back, I guess, basically to the end of the Second World War, to not only espouse promotion and, and uh, you know, other, uh, you know, opportunities for those in uniform on the basis of performance, particularly mm -hmm. in combat. That's the essence of meritocracy. And why is it so vital to the military? Quickly. Well, life and death. Uh, it's just like when, when you get on an airplane, you want to know that the pilot can handle not just routine flying, but emergencies uh, in the most extreme situations. Um, and even in sports, certainly not life and death, but it's... Um, the kind of combat that occurs in front of everybody, you have to be the best and the people who are the best usually win, not always, but um, this, this meritocracy is something ingrained and we respect it in our culture, especially in the military. But what have we seen in recent years? Number one, the Department of Defense is against meritocracy. They want racial discrimination at the service academies. We know that because of the position they took before the Supreme Court and how they're continuing to uh, foster these bureaucracies, the diversity industrial complex. There's a committee called DACODI, Defense Advisory Committee on Diversity and Inclusion. It's being tax funded, it's going full blast as if the Supreme Court decision never happened. Again, Congress can fix this and they can. So there's a lot of discussion about the best ways to do that. And, and you know what? It's an imperative, and I'll tell you why. The definition of woke, it's everybody says, oh, nobody knows what it means. I know exactly what it means, and here's how it works. Wokeism is progressivism taken to extremes, imposed with coercion, even if it hurts the institution. Now, we know we have a recruiting crisis. You know what's causing the recruiting crisis? The numbers have just come out. Big article in the Daily Caller just yesterday. Turns out white recruits have plummeted. The numbers, the percentages have plummeted. And it's because they're being made to feel unwelcome in today's recruiting environment. So in the Army, the percentage of white recruits, and I hate even separating people by race, but here's what the data says, went from 56% down to 44%. That's a huge number. And it, in the Marines, it was 58 down to 43. 
it's my understanding, Elaine, that uh, a very substantial proportion of those are Southern yes. white males. And, and again, not to single them out other than to say they have historically been the backbone right. of the United States military. So if we're suffering recruiting shortfalls in that cohort specifically, we're probably missing key members of our military uh, for perhaps, you know, a generation to come. And I guess the thing that I, I'm so struck by, Elaine, is um, this is a prime example, it seems to me, of the great work that your outfit, the Center for Military Readiness, does. It's, it's kind of just dot connecting, really. But yes. <laughs> I've been told that the service secretaries in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, have been charged properly for figuring out, you know, why are they facing this perilous situation with these recruiting shortfalls? And they have, each of them, re re put off limits, if you will, consideration that maybe it's the policies that they've been promulgating that is the root cause of this it problem. It's a cultural flaw. It's also the strength. We have civilian control of the military. That's a principle that is sound. But when the civilians are giving orders to the military that actually hurt the institution, that is what we're facing now. People in uniform, as you say, they're not really free to dissent on this. In fact, their promotions depend on it. Uh, there was a measure last year to eliminate what is called the Chief Diversity Officer, the CDO. Department of Defense and each one of the services have them. CDOs are everywhere, the service academies. Promotions depend on a I green light from the commissars. CDO. Yeah. Yes, the, the political commissars. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a measure to eliminate the CDOs and to get rid of all the diversity industrial complex. This Unfortunately, is in, in the National Defense Authorization In the Act. Defense Authorization Bill on the House side, those measures did not pass. Now, what they did do was kind of an indirect way. They said, well, we're going to cut the pay to a GS-10. That's about 70000 a year. And these diversity experts, they make double that easily. So if you reduce that pay rate, you're going to say a lot of people, I think I'll pass on that kind of job. But the infrastructure is very strong in the Pentagon. And having been a member of a couple of advisory committees, I know how they work. The brass is intimidated when the DACADI or some other DACAWITS uh, advisory committee comes along and says, you're not doing enough to advance diversity. Well, they do what they need to do to advance diversity. And that's why in the Army figures I mentioned, there were slight increases in Black and Hispanic recruits, slight. But the numbers don't make up for the drop of 56% down to 44% of the white recruits who are the backbone of the military. Right. And Elaine, just very quickly, we've got about a minute left. Talk a little bit about um, the erosion in the standards in order to try to offset the shortfalls. In the oh, group. yes. This is most severe. I mentioned aviation earlier. Uh, when you see the leaders of the Air Force saying, we're going to reduce, and they, they put it in writing. We're going to reduce the percentage of white pilots, white male, in order to increase other groups that are underrepresented. What if this means that the best pilots are being excluded and others are, are being put in positions where they're not the best qualified? This becomes a life and death situation. And, well, and, uh, and, uh, there's uh, got to be a change in all of this. Uh, military mission failure is also right. a, a factor here as well, of course, and that could translate into all kinds of other uh, terrible consequences. Elaine, you're absolutely right. This does need to be addressed afresh. I hope the Congress will prove up to it. I know it yes. will be better with your good help at the Center for Military Readiness. Please check it out and support Elaine's work at cmrlink.org. God bless you, my dear. Come back soon. Thank you, Frank. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Vice President Kamala Harris is en route to a conference in Europe where she'll contend that, unlike Donald Trump and congressional Republicans, Team Biden can be trusted to stand with our allies. The Biden administration's actual record, however, makes this mission impossible. Consider two examples. Joe Biden abjectly surrendered Afghanistan, and now he's actively sabotaging Israel. Think of it as Afghanistan 2.0. Of course, some in Europe welcome the Biden-Harris administration's efforts to prevent Israel from destroying Hamas, giving it so-called humanitarian assistance while constricting weapons resupply of the Jewish state. Some even favor U.S. support for the overthrow of the Israeli government. Other allies, though, are sensibly considering a plan B. That will likely take the form of a separate peace with the Chinese, Russians, and Iranians. The predictable effect will be a far more dangerous world for freedom-loving peoples. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. It's always a red letter day when I'm able to say Trevor Loudon is in the house. Uh, red being one of the things he tracks very closely, red specifically the communists uh, inside the United States and what they're up to. He's pretty good on green as well. The uh, the green of the red-green axis being the Islamists. Um, in short, his portfolio is enemies within a book by that title, a movie by that title, among his uh, collective and very important works. Uh, he is most recently the author of uh, multi-volume sets of books on the security risk senators and the House Un-Americans. Uh, the third installment of the latter is going to be out next month. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, Trevor is also a podcaster and, of course, a marvelous uh, guest and resource for programs like ours. We're always delighted to have him with us. Welcome back, Trevor. Well, thank you so you. much, Frank. Thank, thank you. I'd like to start by asking you about uh, some recent, uh, well, revelations, I guess one might call them, that uh, Barack Obama was personally involved in a meeting in the White House uh, on January 5th, 2017, in which we're told, together with his innermost circle, he plotted how, um, in the days that followed, uh, a campaign of, uh, well, sabotage, I guess, uh, one might say subversion, uh, even a coup, uh, could be waged against the incoming Donald Trump administration. Uh, I'm not sure that all of this is new news, but uh, there may be some fresh insights into uh, the magnitude and, uh, of course, the impact that all of this had on the Trump presidency and, well, where we find ourselves today as Donald Trump is running for re-election as well. What can you shed light on in all of these regards, Trevor? Well, initially, while I came to the United States was to publicize the deep communist background of Barack Obama. And this goes back to his days in Hawaii when he was mentored by an actual Communist Party member named Frank Marshall Davis. Uh, it continued in California, continued in New York. And when he came to Chicago, he went straight into the Communist Party circles in Chicago. So what, what do I say? This is Lenin. It is not the, as Lenin famously said, it is not the gaining of power that's important. It is the keeping of power that's important. Now, that was a shock win for Trump. Immediately, the, the revolutionaries, and I say they are revolutionaries who are running the Barmer administration, knew that they had to sabotage this man really, really quickly. They weren't prepared for his victory. They had to sabotage him every single way they could to make him, as Obama famously said, a bump in the road, just a bump in the road 
towards the progress of the revolution. I think we really need to understand it in these terms. So as any revolutionary will do, they will commit felonies, they will lie, they will use the security services of our own country or foreign countries to, to basically sabotage someone who stands in the path of what they're doing. And I think Trump walked into a 70% a completed uh, revolution, really had no idea what he was walking into. And it's been a credit to his force of personality that he was able to do as much as he did, given the headwinds that were against him from, from the revolutionary left on one side and from the, um, the, the less than conservative wing of his own party. And so, yeah, I, I think this is the context we might look at. This is a, a socialist revolution that was unfolding. He upset the apple cart. Immediately, they set about using foreign intelligence services and domestic um, services like the FBI, the Justice Department, to basically sabotage everything he could do. Uh, I, I don't think there's any other context here. I think this is an important insight, and uh, I so appreciate you're drawing upon your expertise to reach this conclusion. Uh, it's chilling, to say the least, especially, Trevor, insofar as Barack Obama clearly is still very intimately engaged in the not only national affairs of the Democratic Party and its uh, various outliers, but of the well, what I call the Obama-Biden 3.0 administration. Yeah. How would you characterize his role at the moment, uh, that is to say Barack Obama's, especially in light of what uh, Robert Hurd has recently described as the uh, seriously deficient condition of Joe Biden? Well, well, exactly. I, I don't think Joe Biden is in any way in control of the policy direction of his administration. I think it's basically Barack Obama, um, Valerie Jarrett, Susan Rice, and probably Xi Jinping, who are, are really calling the shots right now. Um, In that order, or would you? Uh, well, I probably think Xi's probably at the top, but uh, mm. but but that's, my that's a little harder to establish. But, but we know that Obama is you know, Biden, who was always playing the the moderate, you know, the moderate Democrat. It was sold as a moderate Democrat has not deviated one iota from the Obama game plan. You know, he has just followed everything from Afghanistan to the open borders to social policy. He has not, he has been one Iran, of the most China, on and on. Yeah, and China. He's been one of the most, the most, he's been more radical than Obama because he is doing what Obama would have done if he was in the third term now. He is well, following and, and, the playbook exactly. And again, Trevor, uh, there's a famous video clip of Obama speaking publicly about his desire to have essentially this arrangement whereby mm. he is calling the shots, uh, running the government, but uh, not the face man of it, not having to do the, you know, natty retail politics stuff that's involved. Well, that's right. Unfortunately for Obama, there was there's a two term uh, limit on presidents in the United States. And uh Hillary Clinton would have finished off much of his agenda, but that was sabotaged by Trump, um, rightly so. Upset, <laughs> but by now, it, for but sure. now, um, Biden. As you know, how could you be Obama's vice president for eight years if you are not part of the agenda? If you are not willing to go along with the agenda? Uh, if you're compass mentis, at, at well, most that's points. right. He, uh, Joe Trevor, was we have to take a pause. He was compliant. We'll, we'll come back to that very point on the other side of a very short break. Trevor Loudon is in the house. Stay tuned for much more right after this. Welcome back. Trevor Loudon, our great friend and fabulous resource 
is in the house with us, I'm so pleased to say, virtually. He is uh, the author of a number of books, The Enemies Within, uh, Enemies Within the Church is a movie that he has uh, made in addition to the companion to uh, Enemies Within uh, in uh, a documentary form. He's also got uh, two powerful uh, multi-volume sets that indict really large numbers of members of the United States Senate as security risk senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives as House Un-Americans. I hope you'll check them all out. Trevor, you, you were just making Ava the point available, that... Available on TrevorLoudon.com or Amazon. All of the Signed copies on TrevorLoudon.com. Wonderful. Check it all out there. Um, Trevor, you were just saying that uh, Joe Biden is clearly um, uh, compliant in supporting the agenda of uh, the radical left uh, under the Obama and company team. Um, I did want to ask you in particular about uh, something that's very much in the news at the moment, I think increasingly of concern to large numbers of Americans, uh, and that is well, proof positive, if any were needed, of the truly diabolical nature of the assault this leftist or red-green axis, if you will, is waging against our country, namely by essentially dismantling, uh, most especially our southern border. The old, northern one's always been porous, but uh, not doing much to enforce its uh, uh, security either, but specifically, uh, Trevor, talk about what these guys are up to. Um, there's a, a much reviled uh, so-called conspiracy theory that uh, this is all about a replacement uh, of American voters with foreign ones. Um, tell us what you make of what's afoot and uh, its implications. Look, in my movie, Enemies Within, which you were gracious enough to um, participate in, Frank, we have a clip from Alisao Medina, who was Obama's um, immigration advisor. You know, Obama on tape, we have Obama saying, before I make a decision on immigration, I consult with Alisao Medina. Well, he's a Marxist, a leader of the SEIU union. And he is, we have a tape of him saying it's, that if we can get 8, 10, 11 more, 11 million illegal immigrants voting, they will vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. We can get a permanent governing, governing majority basically forever. So this is the reason for the border. Um, the, 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 there's two reasons here. And this is why I say this is a revolution. And, if, and, and Medina said this in a publicly available... Uh, this, was in a, um, this was in a left-wing conference in Washington, D.C. in 2009, the, uh, uh, run by Robert Borisage of the Institute for Policy Studies, who I'm sure you're well familiar of. But he said it explicitly, and he's Obama's immigration advisor, uh, acknowledged by Obama to be that. And right. so he basically said... And this is when about, Obama was in office, let's recall. Yeah, it was, so. just, it was in 2009, so Obama had just come to office. And so what he basically said was, um, you know, we're going to, to have a permanent majority in this country through illegal immigration. So there's two reasons for this illegal immigration surge. You, you imagine 20, 30 million illegal immigrants... Um, given citizenship and voting rights tomorrow by the current administration. They will then vote for that administration or its successor uh, at least 80%. How, how can there ever be any other government formed ever again? This is a road to a permanent governing majority, a one-party state. But there's also a backup plan here and that we know there are thousands of Russian, Chinese, Iranian, Syrian, um, military age men coming across the border. They're not coming to go to Vegas. They are coming, they're already recorded as practicing at rifle ranges. You know, they're in the country two weeks and they're going to rifle ranges, you know, and, and practicing. So this is um, a fifth column that could be over well over 100,000 strong now, getting ready to sabotage bridges, to block bridges, 
release bioweapons, um, assassinate people of, of, of enemies. This is, in the long term, this is cementing a majority for the Biden party. In the short term, it is creating massive chaos, probably in the lead up to the election, or if President Trump is successful, you can guarantee that what we saw after his last election will be nothing compared to what we see after this one. So, the, you know, and the, the, let's the, just be clear. Be, we need to be ready for this. Yeah, let's just be clear. This is not, uh, you know, the uh, fantasies of uh, Trevor Loudon running amok. This is yeah. now being increasingly documented and warned about by Christopher Ray, the director yeah, of, the of the FBI, among others. Yeah, um, and Trevor, Michael what, what I'm particularly, others. yeah, yeah, no, no, and we at our committee on the present danger of China, which I'm very proud to have you as a member, uh, have been warning about it for some time as well. But um, what I think is particularly concerning is something you touched on there, and that is uh, that at least these Chinese seeming. People's Liberation Army personnel uh, have the distinct potential to marry up with um, laboratories, bio laboratories like the one yeah. that was discovered in Reedley, California, gain access to fresh batches of deadly pathogens, which they would be probably trained and equipped to disseminate. So it's not just um, the rifle ranges that should be of concern. It's the possibility yeah. that those labs exist elsewhere and may be part of uh, this plan. We, we covered it in a wonderful webinar, very, very frightening, I have to say, but nonetheless very powerful of the committee last week uh, entitled G's um, Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, I, I hope people will check it out if you haven't already. PresentDangerChina.org is where you can find it for free, and uh, it is required viewing. So, Trevor, um, just to say uh, all of this is very troubling. Your warnings about it are deeply appreciated and urgently needed to be heeded. And I hope you'll come back with updates on all of it in the very near future. Thank you to yeah, all of you for joining us as well. Come back next time. Until then, as I'm fond of saying, go forth and multiply.